everyone. I'm the producer of the Michelle Miao Show. Michelle is sick today, so I'll be playing some best of shows for you all. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Little Friday, or I should say Thursday. <laughs> it's December 10th, and I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Vong, our producer, is in studio. Hey, Michelle, how are you? You know, I'm hanging in there. I mean, I've been fighting this cold that's been going around. It's nasty, so that explains the frog in the throat. Sorry, listeners. I know. You hear me, like, trying to clear my throat. Yeah, I had to cut some of them out. I'm like, poor listeners. Yeah, sorry, Fong. Sorry, listeners. Um, but, you know, that's what's going around, and, and that's what it is. Uh, but I, I promise you that I'm germ-free. And uh, taking tons of vitamin C. So um, for everyone out there, you know, tis a season. Make sure you stay warm and take care of yourself. Drink lots of uh, liquids and take uh, some vitamins Mm -hmm. uh, to keep yourself healthy. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, what I'm excited about is the the fact that um, we covered Danish Girl. I I talked about Danish Girl and how I had the chance to sit down with the director, Tom Hooper. Um, Yeah, who's done Les Miserables. And, you know, he's just, uh, he's a beautiful filmmaker. And he's very, very focused uh, and and does a a great job Mm -hmm. producing and directing period films. And so he did The Danish Girl, which uh, stars Eddie Redmayne and uh, Alicia Vikander. Um, and Eddie plays a transgender woman who undergoes gender reassignment surgery in the 30s. So literally wow. this woman is a pioneer, Lily Elba. Um, it's an incredible film. I mean, there's been some criticism, for mm-hmm. sure, about you know casting and the uh, continued casting of cisgender men to play transgender women. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you cannot ignore, uh, you cannot ignore, you really cannot ignore Eddie Redmayne's performance. He wow. is just incredible. So if you have a chance, please go see it this weekend. Yeah, definitely. Mm, I'll put it on one of my top lists. You should. And there's also another film. I mean, it's like the year of LGBTQI <laughs> films. Um, Kate Blanchett and uh, Rooney Mara star in the, uh, the, fil- uh, the movie Carol. And it's about this young photographer who falls for this woman, who uh, older woman who's going through a divorce. Mm. So, you know, for, for the lesbians out there. But, I mean, really for everyone, but I, I'm just happy that there's a lesbian-themed film. So You're like, go see these films. Go see these films. Pack um, those houses. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, you know, and, and uh, the, it's, it's really the right season to kind of, you know, go and watch movies as we wind down the year. Um, so speaking of movies and, and stuff like that, are you a Harry Potter fan? Uh yeah, I want to say yeah. I just didn't read all the books, but I watch all the movies. <laughs> yeah, you did. Okay. Um, I <laughs> there are a lot of Harry Potter fans out there. Are you uh, one? E- <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you can call me out here. <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna I'm gonna be my the cynical part of me, and I lost my imagination. Uh, you know, maybe ten years ago, um, I used to be into the you know fantasy type stuff and Wizards, sci-fi. And, no, oh. and yeah, yeah, I was. I, I really, I was really into that stuff. As you know, but um, 
I don't know. I guess life happens, but it doesn't mean that I'm not excited for our guest today. So let's get our program started. Cool. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our guest today is an actor and also the writer and creator of, uh, yes, a a Harry Potter parody. (laughs) It's awesome. It's called Potted Potter. And um, the New York Times called it gloriously goofy. And I'm really excited that it will be here. or It is here at the uh, Palace of Fine Art. So let's welcome Dan Clarkson to the program. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. How are you doing? Well, I am hanging in there. I can't wait for the weekend. <laughs> I know how you feel. Well, no, I'm actually all right. I have three shows at the weekend, so weekends are the hard time for me. Yeah, yeah. So Potted Potter, you know, it's uh, it's playing to sold-out houses all over the world. Obviously, there is an audience for those who are really into the whole Harry Potter thing. But tell us about Potted Potter, uh, this parody. Yeah, well, um, what we're trying to do is we do all seven books in 70 minutes. Um, it's a two-hander sort of comedy. Um, Jeff plays Harry Potter, which is the guy I work with, which leaves me playing all 380 other characters. So I play everyone from Voldemort to Hermione Granger, and being a six-foot-five guy, <laughs> I play a very good 11-year-old schoolgirl. <laughs> I mean, and perfect for someone like you who's never read the book because now you don't have to. We'll literally do it all for you in seventy minutes. That's perfect. That's why I got to go see it, and yeah. the, you know. And so, all right. So, talk to us about this. Uh, you've got to have an incredible imagination to be able to play all of those characters, unless you're seriously invested in the whole Harry Potter thing. Well, I think more you have to just be a very selfish actor, and I don't like sharing props and costumes <laughs> with people, so I just want to do it all myself. And, you know, you can look at someone, say, like Alan Rickman, who plays Snape in the films, and that's all he gets to do. I get to play Snape and Voldemort and Hermione, and, you know, I, I think it just shows what a versatile actor I am. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just, I, you know, that's the uh, most honest answer I think anyone's ever given us here on the program. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the show, it's 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 not meant to be for any one age. I mean, I think that it's even perfect for, you know, kids uh, ages six to, I guess, uh, here on the press release, it says to Dumbledore, who's yeah, well, very absolutely. old. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, very similar to the books, because obviously these were sort of books written for kids, but then sort of got caught up with adults and have a very sort of adult theme and were enjoyed by everyone. And so we really try and do that with the show. So we say we really play to a family audience. And it's great. I mean, last night we had a show in Chicago and I had a sort of eight-year-old birthday party was sat there with a bachelorette party just behind them, all dressed up as wizards, all of them laughing and enjoying it. So it was great (laughs) to see that real mix of audience. (laughs) Um, So as a kid and now as an adult, have you ever been into magic and fantasy and things like that? I I have to say I am. I, I would say I'm a closet geek, but I don't think when you're doing a show about Harry Potter, you're very much in the closet about that. You know, I'm quite an obvious geek. I mean, I'm very excited that Star Wars is coming out in literally next week. So I'm, I'm very into the whole sort of fantasy sci-fi stuff. And I mean, I was queuing up for the books when they first came out and pushing children out the way to get to them first. <laughs> Which worries me because that was almost 18 years ago. So those kids are now probably grown up and going to hunt me down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, speaking of Harry Potter uh, and, uh, yeah, 
you know, Daniel Radcliffe is Harry Potter to some mm. people. They can't separate him. Um, do you think that? Uh, I mean, what what do you have on Daniel Radcliffe? Uh, you know, well, when I mean, you play I don't Harry, play Harry Potter, but Jeff, I really think if you squint and look the other way, uh, he looks just like Harry Potter. <laughs> um, as the years go by, he's resembling more Elton John, but you know that's still a good thing. <laughs> That's that's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing I did. I mean, in all seriousness, you know that what I love about uh, fantasy, and uh, I really got to get into it because what I meant when I said I lost that, you know, I lost the the whole that whole part of me due to the fact that I became an adult and I realized that these adult issues are so depressing um, that I kind of got lost in that. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, absolutely. But then that's when things like fantasy and parody really, you know. It, it's a horrible world out there at the moment. Sometimes it's just nice to escape from it all and and have these great stories where good versus evil and good triumphs through magic and sort of it, it, it's just it, it's a nice escapism. And we sort of have the same with our show. It's just seventy minutes of really having good fun and enjoying yourself. And we sort of have a live game of Quidditch in the show, which we have grown men physically hurling quaffles and balls around trying to score goals and literally just forgetting about life for 70 minutes and having a great time. That is so awesome. We're speaking with Daniel Clark Clarkson. He is the uh, producer and writer of Potted Potter, and it's here in San Francisco. It opens up this weekend, right? Yeah. Um, I think we come in on the 18th. The 18th and uh, it's uh, where is it playing at? It's playing at a theatre. Yeah, the, the Palace of Fine Arts. Uh, that sounds yes. great. That's where we're going to be. I just um, got on a plane and I'm pointed in the right direction. Um, so you're a two-time Olivier Award-nominated, you know, actor, uh, and uh, you know, so you've been obviously doing this for for a while and and very successful at it. Um, you know, what? I guess you love your job. I mean, yeah. Oh, very much. I mean, I get a great job. I get to dress up as wizards, and then uh, we have a couple of other shows at the moment. We're doing Potted Sherlock, so I get to dress up as Victorian detectives. Um, we had a show about pirates, so I get to dress up. As, I literally like dressing up as other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, my mum tells everyone that I'm a lawyer, but, you know, that's fine. We can get by that. <laughs> are, you, are you a lawyer, like, at nighttime, maybe? Yeah, I could be. I think I'd be a great lawyer. I, I watch a lot of L.A. law, so I think, you know, I could blag it. What's been the greatest response from some of your fans? Maybe some, maybe some from your younger fans. Oh, what I think the best one we ever had was a um, Harry Potter website said that we do the jokes the fans would say themselves. And that, for me, was one of the greatest compliments that we sort of, because it is very much a loving sort of homage to the show. Mm-hmm. And we or to the book, sorry, and we really try to be as respectful as we can to it. But then during the show, we get a lot of, um, we get a couple of kids up on stage, and sometimes where our minds sort of work from A to B to C, kids' minds can go from A to F to E, and some of the things they'll say live on stage, you just can't predict them. Mm-hmm. And so we can often have a lot of fun with them when they, they, they sort of, you have to be on your toes, which gives a sort of fresh ad lib to the show. I don't think any show's ever been the same, which is great. And uh, do you ever get anyone who might be upset that it, you know it's 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 different? It's it's not the actual Harry Potter, or or that it's all Harry Potter and you know seven books in seventy minutes. Yeah, 
so far, no. So far, everyone seemed to enjoy it, Touchwood, um, and everyone seems to sort of come along and see the spirit it is in, because I think we are both Harry Potter fans, and I think, you know, if you're going to parody something, you have to be a fan, otherwise it has the danger of becoming sort of a bit bitter and twisted. It's why I would never parody Twilight. I just burn those books. But, you know, that's just between me and you. Don't tell it. <laughs> Twilight? Well, I, you, you know, okay, I did read Twilight. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, it ruined <laughs> vampires for everyone. They shouldn't be all sparkly. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I'm sure you've traveled all over in doing Potted Potter and mm. seen, you know, quite a diverse audience for that yeah. matter. Um, I, I tend to find that, you know, with uh, the kids are growing up too fast these days. What do you think of that statement? Um, I absolutely agree. I think, I mean, I still think everyone should let their inner child out all the time. And there's this tendency that they all have to be there on their iPhones and they all have to be sort of wearing the makeup. and wearing, It's like, be kids, have fun. And so, really, with this show, it's great to see that. And especially, one of my favorite things is when you get, say, these sort of 13, 14-year-old age group, where they're trying not to enjoy it, trying to be too cool for school, and then finally the smile starts to crack. And by the end of it, they're just laughing along. And you can see that sort of inner child coming out, which is always a great thing to watch in an audience. <laughs> now, when you're here in San Francisco, by the way, at the Palace of Fine Arts, um, you're, the shows are running from December to basically, you know, the first weekend of January. That's a lot of shows. Yeah. I mean, how do you, and you're playing all these different roles, how do you do it? <laughs> um, it, it? It's a great workout. It means I can eat whatever I want for Christmas, which is always a nice thing. Um, it, it's like you're saying, a lot of vitamin C and a lot of rest and, you know, don't enjoy the nightlife too much. Uh, and uh, I mean, do you do you have a family? Uh, I, I guess mentally and emotionally, how do you? Or, but then you love what you do. I, I, what yeah. am I talking about? Yeah, and you know, we're, you're sort of a family on the people you tour with. I mean, yeah. obviously, my um, Jeff is my comedy partner. Um, his girlfriend calls me his second wife anyway, because <laughs> of the amount of time we spend together, sort of on the road. And then you have your stage crew and your sort of um, understudies and everyone becomes a big family together. And so you all sort of share in. And, and it can be tough over Christmas, obviously, because you miss your family back home. But you sort of create your own sort of on-the-road family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you and really like? a great like... place to be is San Francisco. It's San Francisco, you know, you that's right. I can't with that, that I get to be in San Francisco for Christmas and New Year. That's right. Uh, so what do you really like, you know, outside of uh, being magical during Potted Potter? Are, are, you, are you funny? I mean, I guess you made me, you made me laugh this morning. That, that, that's, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm nonstop hilarity. Um, <laughs> usually I'm asleep outside the show. That, that, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. Hey, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I want to dive into uh, just uh, you know being in San Francisco and talk to you a little bit about uh, magic here in San Francisco. Is that all right? Amazing. Yeah, of course. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. Don't go away. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on Little Friday. Little Friday is pretty much, you know, it's Thursday, but I just feel like, you know, who works on Friday anyway? (laughs) It's time to enjoy the weekend, and we are definitely starting that with our guest today, Daniel Clarkson, who is the creator and uh, one of the writers of Potted Potter, and it's coming here to San Francisco for all you Harry Potter fans. It's a new, different way to experience Harry Potter, and it, all in 70 minutes with uh, the very funny Dan here. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. No, thank you for having me. So I had to bring this up. I mean, you know, I, I think Harry Potter became so successful that, of course, there has to be a lot of haters out there. Um, and, 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 you know, one that we talk a lot sometimes would be the, the controversy that uh, some Christian groups have raised um, over the use of magic uh, in yeah. this, the whole thing, and it being, you know, witchcraft or, or something like that. Uh, obviously, a fan of Harry Potter and carrying, you know, the uh, culture on. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I know. I mean, here's a story about a guy who dies and then rises again. I mean, it's just where would they want to get on board with something like that? Um, sorry, that was very sarcastic of me. I think, <laughs> I, I think it's it's you know it's it's a children's story. It's like where does it stop? Do you sort of start banning fairy stories because there's a witch in there who uses magic powers, or you know it's it's fantasy. It's not meant to be real, and it's in no way I think meant to be offending anybody. Yeah. And I think if you take it at the level of just a great story that tells you about good and evil and you take the morals from that, then I think there's a lot to be learned from it. Yeah, exactly. Well, right before the break, um, I mentioned, you know, San Francisco and, uh, you know, and I just wanted to know, um, what do you like about San Francisco? Where have you been so far? I, I, I actually, I'm not even in San Francisco yet. I arrive on at the weekend and I've never been there before, but I'm really excited 
to the point I've just booked my Alcatraz tour. You are really excited. I yeah. mean, because <laughs> if that's the first thing you did, um, then then that really means you're coming here for the first time. So I'm always interested for those who are, you know, uh, outside of San Francisco. So I've been here for a really long time and I've seen you know, different faces change over time. Uh, kind of what is your your perception of what San Francisco is like today? Um, I've sort of because I've been to California a lot and I stay some time in L.A. and I sense you guys are sort of just a lot more chilled out than L.A. in a good way. And everything I know is from the movies, and it's the hills, and it's the trams, and it's sort of the Golden Gate Bridge and that view from when everyone sits up. You know, every movie there seems to be that scene where you're all sitting up on a hill watching the sun rise <laughs> over the Golden Gate Bridge, and they go, that's San Francisco. <laughs> and so I'm looking forward to doing all of that. And so expectations are high because it's somewhere I've really wanted to go. And the great thing about when you've created a show is you can choose where you want to go on the tour. Well, it That's is straight away. I'd go San Francisco. I'd like to go there, please. Yeah, exactly. It's it's quite a magical place, and uh, you know, lots of people look at it as you know, the gateway to the gays. Mm. I mean, how does that make you feel? Absolutely fine with that. Great. <laughs> I mean, you know, right. um, I hear I have to put flowers in my hair, according to the song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, LGBTQI people are huge fans of uh, fantasy, and uh, I'm guessing also huge fans of Harry Potter. Mm. Um, and uh, and I, I, I don't know, you know, I think that a lot of fantasy kind of plays on this ambiguous uh, sexual orientation yeah. uh, situation. Well, I mean, Rowling outed Dumbledore a few years ago. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the main characters, I think, one of the most famous wizards of all time. Do you find it funny, though, I mean, for someone who's visiting San Francisco, that there's there's such controversy around uh, things like this? Um, no, yeah, I find it. I think someone visiting um, the USA on the whole, they can often, I, I find it, I, I just don't see why there needs to be any controversy on any of it. You know, it's like it's, I have a very live and let live policy, and that might be because I've grown up in the arts and I've grown up around theater. And it's, you know, let everybody be who they want to be. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, yeah. uh, which is great, and, and I and I love that that you think that way because you're also someone that will influence, you know, children and uh, and things like that. So speaking of San Francisco, as we wind down our conversation, I mean, one of the things that I think you should definitely do is have a uh, burrito. All right, done. I'm I'm actually writing that on my list now. Yes, so we're, burrito and Alcatraz. We're very Not snobby very about the, the burrito thing. You know, yeah, where, where do I need to have one from? Though? Well, it's just, this is hard because then I'd be outing myself as, a, a, you know, a, I guess having a favorite. And, yeah. and, and I don't want to do that, but I'll give you some <clears throat> tips or hints. La Taqueria, um, you know, in the mission yeah. uh, has been awarded as one, one of the best burritos in the entire country by some woman who ate over 400 burritos and writes a blog. You know how wow. important they are. Yes. 400 burritos? <laughs> Well, yes. never mind my job. That's the new job I want. That's amazing. Right. Yeah. It is the place where any, you know, buddy can be somebody here in San Francisco. Yeah. But uh, she, she, her measurements or how she measured, you know, a, a burrito included things like liquid ratio, um, girth of the burrito. I'm not joking. <laughs> well, yeah, that's very important with a burrito. I've never given it that much thought other than can it get into my mouth quickly. <laughs> 
That yeah. would be my test of a good burrito. Right. But, you know, if she's had 400, who am I to argue with? <laughs> um, one of the other things, I guess, you, I mean, if you're, you, you'll have to do, in my opinion, as a, uh, as a local, um, the Alcatraz thing, I mean, sure, you know, as a tourist, you absolutely uh, have got to do that. But if you find yourself in the Castro, of course, you know, it's a gay neighborhood. Yeah. Um, we have a sports bar now. Oh. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, I like sports. Yay, sports. <laughs> Still trying to get my head around half the sports out here. Yeah. Um, and, and there's actually some, uh, you know, magic parlors, too. Um, okay. A good friend of mine, Walt, does a magic show um, that, uh, that's uh, downtown Union Square. I mean, you know, it's, you get, it's your first time. You're, you have a lot of weekends to explore it. I'm, I'm having fun with you now. <laughs> No, no, this is good. I'm writing all of this down. So if I'm going to go and see Walt's Magic Show in Union Square and eat a burrito that the woman who ate too many burritos ever that you should eat, really, to stay healthy. I mean, 400 burritos, that's more than one a day for a year. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I don't know. Maybe she eats them and then throws them up. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. You'd be kind of sick of burritos. <laughs> Well, you know, Dan, I'm really excited uh, for Potted Potter, and I think it's a, a great, uh, you know, thing here during the season when people are out watching shows. So thank you for bringing this to San Francisco. No, thank you very much for having us. Really looking forward to coming there. And what a great time to be here with Christmas and New Year. Yes. So just to remind everyone, Potted Potter is the hit Harry Potter parody that will be at the Palace of Fine Arts Theater from December 19th through January 3rd. And it's basically all seven Harry Potter books in 70 hilarious minutes. Um, so look it up, Potted Potter, and get your tickets today. Tickets, uh, Ticket prices range from $39.99 to $99.99. And it's available online at Ticketfly.com. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, hopefully we'll see much. you soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks very much. Right. Have a great day. You too. Enjoy your weekend. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can catch the Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it. I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. 
um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, Michelle Meow, your host. And uh, yeah, the first half of the show was pretty fun and just playing around with Harry Potter. I know you guys are big Harry Potter fans. Just maybe some of you are closeted about it, and that's okay. Uh, but we're going to switch gears now and um, talk about something that, uh, you know, we, we're what you're probably much more used to when tuning in to the Progressive Voices Network. Um, and uh, let's talk. Let's talk about something a little bit serious here. In the uh, latest uh, CDC report, there's been some findings um, regarding HIV that's pretty disturbing, uh, such as an increase in infection among gay men of color. And so here to discuss the overall findings is the one of the editors at large at uh, my favorite publication on LGBT news, by the way, The Advocate, <laughs> Diane Anderson Minchel. Diane, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Uh, so very alarming, you know, this statement of saying that uh, there are some some statistics that we're not really talking about and the, the fact that there is an increase in infection among gay men of color uh, and compared to heterosexuals, uh, which, you know, the percentage of the, the diagnosis there is down. Let's talk about, you know, this increase. How bad is it? Um, well, you know, it's, it's bad, basically. Uh, you know, it, it, there's, there's parts where it looks like it could be stabilizing, but if you're talking about uh, for gay and bi black men, they account for 10,000 of the 40,000 new HIV diagnosed cases each year. So, uh, you know, stabilizing at 10,000 is, is uh, not a good reason to celebrate just because those are, those are already high and alarming numbers. So, but we've seen over the past decade sort of, uh, you know, this trend towards um, gay and bi men of color, uh, you know, their HIV rates going up, especially among younger people. So this is one of the, the cases where uh, among both black and Latino gay and bi men between the ages of 13 and 24, researchers found an 87% rise in new HIV diagnosis uh, oh. since 2005, uh, which is, you know, about... 30% higher than it is for their white counterparts. So it, you have this widening racial gap when it comes to uh, HIV and AIDS. So if you're looking, you know, this is a, a good way to, to look at it. I've got a couple of numbers, I think, that, that are always good to keep in mind. So black gay and bi men are 70 ti 72 times more likely to get HIV than someone in the general population, whereas white gay and bi men are only 40 times more likely. So you're talking about you know, gradations of, of pretty alarming numbers. And if nothing changes in what we're doing and how we're reaching uh, black and uh, Latino men, uh, we know that six in 10 black, particularly black gay and bi men, will be HIV positive by the time they're 40, if nothing changes. So, you know, the media does this a lot. Yeah, sometimes they, they kind of want to pick and choose what they want to report. And so there had been some upbeat reporting, as this article had stated on The Advocate from the CDC. Um, but um, but obviously for the this 
particular statistic, it's so alarming, we're not picking it up on major mainstream reporting. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's one of those things that are, you know, it's it's a bit buried in the numbers, and so people want to see the positive in all of these numbers. It, it does give some hope to see these positive changes. Uh, if And there are positive changes for people of color, actually. Uh, African-American women, uh, generally straight African-American women, cisgender, are uh, half as likely, you know, their rates went down by almost 50%. So you have you know, you have great uh, strides being made for African-American women, but for uh, gay and by african american men, it's just not the same thing. But I think that part of the reason why the media doesn't pick up those numbers is because it's such a complex issue. You can't really unpack the whole. It's not easy to compile in one little, like, neat soundbite or one little neat, uh, you know, pullout that's going to get you a lot of uh, traffic. Because in order to talk about gay and bi uh, men, black gay and bi men, uh, you know, and their HIV rates, you have to talk about a lot of sort of uh, the intersections that create those things, like the discrimination and poverty and stigma and lack of access to health care. And those are just not, uh, you know, sexy things for the media to pick up on. They're just more complex and nuanced. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that that's that's one of the main reasons why it doesn't get picked up. You mentioned 6 and 10. Uh, I, you know, I know that the advocate is planning on addressing the lack of, I guess, you know, information that's out there regarding this issue. Uh, talk to us about 6 and 10. Sure. Uh, we actually just did a series called 6 and 10, um, which really focused on, uh, you know, again, black game by men and HIV, what the numbers mean, what the problems are, what needs to be done. Uh, and really, it's 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 an interesting series. It's kind of uh, it follows up on a number of pieces that we've been doing in our sister publication, Plus Magazine, which is our HIV magazine for people living with HIV. We've done a series there on uh, the intersections around African Americans and HIV, and um, and then the Advocate Six and Ten is kind of a, a you know a serialized follow up on that. That's specifically. Uh, for both HIV negative and HIV positive readers. So and we really explore one of the things people like will take away. If in mainstream media what people will get was the sound bite is, you know, gay and bi men who are African American are much more likely to have HIV and that's what they'll take away from it. They'll they'll take away, oh well there must be something that they're doing wrong, you know, because that's mm-hmm. the first thing in our sort of stigmatized world where people will go with HIV, but actually for um, black gay men, <clears throat> it's actually a very nuanced, uh, you know, situation because we actually know there's no one single fact you can point to as being this is the cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do know there's a lot of things where, uh, you know, uh, black African, uh, sorry, I keep saying both, I'm so tired. Uh, oh. So African-American, gay and bi men, uh, they use condoms more than white men. They use fewer drugs. They don't use, you know, poppers and party drugs in the same level that their white uh, gay and bi peers do. They actually get, they have higher rates of HIV testing in some regions. Uh, so, but I think that part of the, you know, when you're looking at the problems, the reasons what, what lead up to this is um, that you have, one of the main things is because, uh 
gay and bi men tend to date other people and have sexual relations with other people who are of the same race, which means that when you have more people who have HIV in one community and those people are dating each other, you're much more likely to be exposed to HIV. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a white gay man in Atlanta, this is a recent uh, study, if I'm a white gay man in Atlanta, it takes me seven sex partners before I encounter somebody who is HIV positive. Um, if I'm a black man in, who's gay in that same city, uh, it only takes me three and a half sex partners. I don't know how you get a half a partner, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I so do. the numbers are the, the average is yeah. but they, they tell you basically. So you're more likely to encounter people who have HIV in your sexual relations. And then uh, we do know that uh, black gay men, a substantial portion of black gay men remain undiagnosed. And so anybody who's undiagnosed doesn't have access to medications. They aren't virally suppressed. And thus, you know, if they're having uh, sexual relations with somebody who isn't on PrEP or isn't using condoms, then they are exposing them to HIV. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's part of, you know, again, the, the, you know, there's so many more factors. Of course, HIV-positive black gay men are less likely to make $20,000 than white gay men. They're 50% less likely to have health insurance. So all of those things kind of limit access. But it's it's a little bit of what we call the perfect storm for, mm-hmm. for black gay and bi men right now in HIV. Now, information like this, I mean, it, you have to be extremely honest, um, especially if you're trying to get the, the information out there for educational purposes. And one of the things that we talk about all the time is the fact that, you know, if we don't have the ed- education out there, the proper education, then it's really hard to provide a solution for a situation like this. So as an editor, you know, for The Advocate, um, the largest uh, the, you know place to go to for LGBTQI news, um, I, I, I wonder if you that's where your head head is at in terms of providing the raw numbers so that people in our community really have have the advocate for a tool, not just, you know, for entertainment or for just to get news, but that that it could really change your life if you're reporting it the right way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, This is actually something that the advocates really changed. Their whole organization has actually really this in the last year, uh, you know, really come together, um, like literally the editors of, of different brands have come together um, and talked about, you know, bringing in more, uh, reviving basically HIV journalism, you know, really reviving the focus on HIV, talking about it again. It's fallen off the wayside. Uh, especially in LGBT media, and uh, and we've always been the vanguards of you know of talking about HIV and AIDS, and so it's time for us to sort of revive that again. So for us, we've you know increased our really our coverage and our investigative journalism around it, um, and sort of giving out the raw information, which for sometimes for us is you know is talking about what it takes to be safe or what it, you know, the, the literal reality of mm-hmm. being safe and uh, the cost of, of doing particular things, but also, um, you know, again, how the fight against HIV is tied in with the fight against other things like youth homelessness or how it is, you know, it's tied in with, uh, you know, the uh, homophobia in black churches or 
for black, gay, and bi men face higher rates of HIV and higher rates of incarceration and how that, you know, when you're incarcerated, you're denied condoms, and so that creates a perfect storm there. So there's a lot about that that we've started to really in the last year just talk about across our all of our brands and especially in the advocate with our we, – we launched our biggest series last fall, which was our um, – 30 days of prep, and that was we spent, you know, we recognize, and I'm a huge proponent of prep, which mm-hmm. is pre-exposure prophylaxis, right. and um, and we really recognize this is one of the major prevention tools out there that is still not getting out to uh, certain populations, and in, and I can say in particular gay and black, gay and bi black men are not getting prep at this time, and that's something we need to change. So we did this big series on prep. We had a story each day that uh, focused on some element of prep and also kind of um, eroding the myths that people have about um, prep and what it means and what it does to you and that kind of stuff. So I think what I do remember being at the U.S. Conference on AIDS and being in a panel that was largely African-American queer men um, and, you know, and then as well as people who care for them, social workers and, and clinicians and stuff and other activists. And, you know, we were talking about how difficult it was to get people on antiretroviral treatment when they're HIV positive, especially in the South. There, you know, there are many places where the funding isn't there, the research isn't there, the access to health care isn't there. And so, uh, so we were talking about the difficulties of that, and somebody said, well, what about PrEP, which, you know, our, is our main prevention tool right now. And, um, and I just remember one of the, you know, social workers standing up and saying, I can't even get sick people on medication. I just, mm-hmm. you know, with that, I can't even think about trying to get healthy people on medication. You know, I still got to try and get these sick people on medication. Um, so right. it kind of underscored how different it is, you know, the trajectory, the experience that we're having in the South around HIV and AIDS and how different it is from particular areas like San Francisco, which is, you know, of course, seeing a 20% decline in their numbers and which is seeing a huge uptick on on PrEP and also viral suppression. So um, a city like San Francisco is going to meet the uh, CDC goals of 90-90-90. Do you know what those are? No. Okay, so at the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they have these new goals, 90-90-90, that a lot of uh, folks are working towards. And what they mean is 90% of the people who have HIV know that they have it, and then 90% of those people are on antiretroviral treatment, and then 90% of those people are virally suppressed or undetectable, meaning that there's such a low level of the virus in their blood that they can't actually pass HIV on to other people. And so, main that's you know, treatment as prevention has become one of the main uh, tools for lowering the number of HIV cases. It's what slows down the rate of HIV, you know, rates in an area is if we get people who do have HIV on treatment, get them undetectable, um, then they can't pass it to anybody else. Right, right, right. Right, man, it's just like, you know, unless you're you're really immersed into the, the articles that are discussing this, um, this information isn't really out there, uh, you know what I mean? Like it's it's mm-hmm. um, it's not what what the the trending article would be when it comes to a discussion about HIV. Unfortunately, 
if you are someone who only plugs into mainstream media, I'm, I think that you would have a complete different perception about HIV AIDS and its impact. Yeah, I mean, I think we've done a good job of showing that HIV uh, is, you know, it's not this, uh, this hor- it's not AIDS. First of all, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people for the longest time just thought of AIDS when they thought of HIV, um, and they thought of that period in the 80s and early 90s when all of our friends were dying and everybody got diagnosed and then died within, you know, days, weeks, months, and um, and that's not the situation in it, for the large part of America. The situation now is people have HIV. It's a chronic condition, so they're going to take medications for life, but those medications are going to make them have relatively long, healthy lives that are going to be on par with their peers. And so it's really good that we've been able to show that this is what it means to live with HIV now. The problem is, is we haven't shown what it's like for the people who haven't gotten to that. So uh, when we we don't show that the HIV crisis, uh, you know, below the Mason-Dixon line is is uh, you know is still significant and substantial and. Right. Um, so I think that we, we don't show that kind of thing. And I think that's really part of the thing is, like, we've done a good job of showing uh, people living with HIV or just like everybody else. Um, everybody's got some kind of condition that they live with at some point of their lives. Um, you know, it's very, very common. Like, the 87% of us will be disabled within our lifetimes. So, um, so this is, you know, that kind of a thing. But I do think that, yeah, then you miss, you know, that... Um, you know, that you miss uh, what's happening in the South where people are still dying from HIV, uh, well, from AIDS once they convert. Um, Diane, I know that you mentioned um, earlier that you're tired, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. However, I do want you to come back on and I want to have like a much, you know, an in-depth discussion about a lot of things. So I have one last question for you and we'll let you go. And, you know, people are always asking, like, are we always going to need an LGBT specific publication? Um, you know, especially post marriage equality. I, I think the answer is yes. Well, what about for you? I think the answer is yes too. Absolutely. Here's what I say: is you know, if you tell me the mainstream is lovely that it's been picking up our stories. It's lovely to see Ellen on People magazine and to see, you know, uh, ordinary people, uh, ordinary LGBT people getting married and uh, in and um, and those stories being profiled and you know mainstream publications that kind of thing. But the truth is, is the mainstream media, even the alternative mainstream media like your weeklies, which are very usually very queer friends or trans-friendly, um, those are never going to have the, you know, the space uh, or the interest in really comprehensively covering your life if you're a person who identifies as LGBTQ. Um, it's just like, you know, the breadth of the stories in our community, the, 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 the nuances of our life, and just sort of the wonderful variety that there is out there. Um, you know, one type of story about gay people is out there. One type of story about trans women is out there. Um, but there are, you know, as you know, thousands upon thousands of narratives about what it means to be trans or mm-hmm. gay or bi. And so LGBT media is what's going to cover that. I think as we become more and more mainstreamed, uh, as more... Uh, you know, fewer, for example, fewer millennials are actually going to gay bars at this point, right? So right. we've become more and more mainstreamed. And I think at that point, though, you're still going to need some continuity around 
uh, your, you know, around your orientation and your uh, political identity as an LGBTQ person. So, and that's what you get from our media. I love it. I love it. Diane, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Diane Anderson Minchel, she's the editor for The Advocate. We're so lucky to have her on for just a little bit, but I promise uh, we're going to make her come back and, and talk about some things. Don't go away. We'll be right back. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. This is Kristen Williams with The Trans Advocate. Today I have a short podcast for you. Um, It was actually supposed to be a a quite longer episode, but um, there was a problem with recording the speeches that I wanted to be able to um, share with you here. So this podcast is about the Houston Transgender Day of Remembrance, specifically coming on the tail end of the defeat of HERO, that is Houston's Equal Rights Ordinance that was defeated largely due to false and derogatory anti-trans ads. This is one example of one of those ads. This ordinance will allow men to freely go into women's bathrooms locker rooms and showers that is filthy that is disgusting and that is unsafe now the hate you just heard was the basis of the anti-hero campaign and that hate has fueled a number of anti-trans attacks in the houston area i personally got a call from a trans woman 
who was physically assaulted for trying to use the restroom while these ads were playing. I know of two other incidences where non-trans, that is cisgender lesbians, were also attacked uh, as being, quote, men in the women's restroom. And so I, th I thought it was important to bring you two speeches from Houston's Transgender Day of Remembrance that was held at the University of Houston. The problem was that I was using my iPhone to record what you were about to listen to. I tried to record Judge Phyllis Fry. She's a trans pioneer here in Houston and certainly nationally as well. The, the problem was that the space we were using was quite large, and so there was a very distinct echo, so much so that, unfortunately, her uh, speech is, is quite difficult to hear, although I have the audio, and I will probably kind of link it in the description of this episode so that if you want to spend the time uh, closely listening to it. Um, it's an important speech. However, it, it's quite difficult to hear. The other, um, I was honored to be chosen to speak at the Day of Remembrance. And of course, whenever I got up to speak, I had my iPhone recording from the podium. So what I had to say was quite clear uh, without the echo and the distortion. So, unfortunately, all I have for you today is uh, the speech I gave. Um, however, it, it sums up what the overall theme of our Trans Day of Remembrance was about um, and touches on a number of issues Judge Phyllis Fry touched on. Phyllis uh, made it clear that trans people in Houston should not go anywhere by themselves at night. Moreover, everyone was handed a copy of Houston's bathroom ordinance. That's right. Houston has had a bathroom ordinance now since the early 60s. And the Houston bathroom ordinance makes it a crime for someone of the opposite sex to go into the restroom uh, either without the permission of the landlord, um, the manager, or someone kind of in charge of that space, or for the purposes of committing a disturbance. And certainly any of the uh, scenarios the anti-equality people suggested fit that latter part. So everything in these anti-trans advertisements was absolutely illegal, but that didn't stop the right wing. That didn't stop the forces of anti-equality from lying, oftentimes in the name of God, to people, as long as it invoked a sense of fear and dread uh, among people. Uh, individuals who were listening to these um, to these advertisements. So without further ado, here is my speech given at the Houston Transgender Day of Remembrance held on Saturday, November 21st, 2015 at the University of Houston.
I've worn a lot of hats over the years, and uh, tonight I'm not wearing a hat. I am a community member like you are a community member. Um, and I came to this event, and let me tell you, this event is difficult for me because it touches real trauma. There are names in these lists that I have known. There are names in these lists of people who came asking for help because they were homeless, because certain types of homeless providers don't work with trans people. And so I've seen over the decades how insidious hate is. And it hurts to the core. It always hurts. And I thought about what I could talk about today in the face of, on the backside of all of the hate that we just faced as a community. The very hate that fuels these actions. This is the end result of that hate. The hate we all faced and endured. As an activist, I've struggled. I've struggled to learn how to work with that pain. Getting pissed is sometimes constructive. Sometimes I, I have had to allow myself time to just grieve. And for many, many years, the trans community had only one international event. And what was it? It was a memorial service. While we had all these other groups that were having parties and things, our one thing that brought us together was our shared pain. And that's why I come to this event. Because it's the one space, the one time of the year that I can be open about the hate that I face, my brothers and sisters face. And the hate, the very hate that we all face is the same hate that murdered all of these people year after year after year. And so when I see ads on television suggesting that someone like myself might go and rape little children, and then get a phone call from a trans woman who was just assaulted in the Houston area for daring to try to use the restroom, that tells me something. It tells me that out of all the years that we've done this here in Houston, this is a special year. It's a year that we need to have a space to acknowledge the hurt that we all feel, the pain that we all share, and the trauma very real trauma we've all endured. Each time one of those ads comes on, it's a trauma. 
And I don't know about you, but I'm guessing I'm not so different. Every time one of those ads come on, I relive the people that I've lost. I relive having bottles thrown at me. I relive being ejected from businesses. I relive needing social services and being denied because I was trans. Hate isn't just this singular thing that's out there in the universe that affects some people sometimes. It's a continuum. And the ads, the hate that we all saw is absolutely on that continuum and leads to one place. And Phyllis is right. Sadly, I fully expect to hear more about my brothers and sisters in this community whose lives are made infinitely more difficult by the hate that was spread on our media, that was allowed to be spread in our media. And so I, I just want to thank you for being here and giving presence within the context of everything that's happened to give presence to the reality that we all live with. We all know it. I don't know about you, but whenever I was tr- first transitioning, I would spend about two hours getting ready to go out the door, not because I thought I was a diva, because I didn't want to be murdered. That was to go get a loaf of bread. I lived with that fear, that gnawing fear, day in, day out, week after week, year after year. Um, It was mentioned that one of the hats that I wear is a historian. And over the past few years, I've looked into this, um, into the tactics of um, groups who stand against equality. And it's almost as if they have a one-trick pony. And that one-trick pony shows up in two different guises, and that is, the oppressed person will rape us. Or that oppressed person over there shouldn't be in our bathrooms. We in the South have a long, painful history of voting on minority rights. And here in the South, when we were looking at desegregation, we were told that if people of color use the bathroom that white people do, bad things will happen. We were told that if we integrate locker rooms, that will be violating our southern traditions. Some of you might remember the ERA. It was defeated because people were told that if women have equality, men can hang out in the restroom and it would be legal for them to rape. Then HIV happened. And I remember 
hearing people say that unless we sequester those people over there, keep them away from us, keep them out of our bathrooms, bad things will happen. Don't ask, don't tell. If you read the Pentagon report, it says in there that the one thing, the big concern people had was if we allow gay people to serve openly, well, then they'll start raping people. This argument isn't new. It's not even new in Houston. When queer people wanted the right to not be fired in Houston, if there were a city employee back in the 80s, um, we voted to uh, not let them have that right. And the Klan was marching around in Houston carrying signs that says, save our children. Because, and the message was, if queer people have equality, even just a little bit, your children will be harmed because gay predators. That's how we were constructed. That was the message. It's the same damn message. Those who use that message, that narrative, need to be held accountable. That argument came from somewhere, and it came from a very painful and bloody Southern tradition. And if they're going to use that argument, they need to own the history that animates that argument. And we must hold them accountable to that. Again, I want to thank you so much for being here and for giving presence to everything that's happened over the past few months and especially to where that hate inevitably leads. So thank you.